and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have two amazing guests to introduce to you now. Natalie Kavarik is a modern-day ranch wife and mom. Natalie, along with her husband Luke and their three sons, ranch in central Nebraska in a beautiful area known as the Nebraska Sandhills. She shares her personal journey of ranching and family-ing as a way to showcase the beauty behind the Western lifestyle, as well as foster a community who believes in the agriculture world as much as she does. Tara Vanderdussen, also known as the New Mexico Milkmaid, is a dairy farmer and New Mexico native, growing up on her family dairy farm in eastern New Mexico. Now Tara and her husband, Daniel, dairy farm along with their two daughters. Tara has worked as an environmental scientist for the last 10 years on dairy farm projects throughout the Southwest. Together, they host the Discover Ag podcast. Discover Ag hosts Natalie and Tara give their professional farming opinions on the top trending topics and news in the agriculture and food space to help you better understand the food system and connect with the hands that feed us. Expect to be wildly entertained and informed as you can discover what's new in the world of agriculture. Natalie and Tower, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Balanced Body Radio. Thank you for having us. We are so excited about this. Yeah, this will be fun. This is going to be a lot of fun. So glad we were able to set this up. I told you off air, I actually found your podcast about a year ago. I was doing some research on an interview with Nina Teicholz and came across your podcast all about the ridiculous food compass uh, from Tufts. Just absolutely ridiculous. So I've listened to your show for quite a while. And as I was scrolling through some of the episodes and realized that I already come across your work, I saw that you guys did a book club with one of my favorite books ever, which is Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> I haven't listened to that one yet. It's in my queue. I can't wait to listen. What made you guys come across that book? So we have guest interviews on for our book club and we had those episodes. And so it was actually recommended by our guest that was um, gonna be helping us review the book. Um, it was actually a book I had already read and then when we did it for the book club, I listened to it on audio and it was one of those books. I was so glad that I listened to it twice and I'm glad I got to listen to the audio version and read the book as well because it is so good. It is so good. Listening to that book is absolutely a game changer. I haven't read the book, but listening to it in his voice, obviously, like nobody else was going to narrate that. It was just a wonderful listen. <laughs> I can still remember certain parts because I listened to it as well. And it was last summer because I was in the garden and I can remember, like, I still remember certain things he said and being in the garden and just like having that major impact on your life with just his words. It's pretty crazy. It's a phenomenal book for anyone who hasn't read or listened to it yet. Yeah, I can't recommend it highly enough. Well, let's hear your stories. Um, oftentimes, Natalie, I get to hear your story first. So, Tara, I'd like to start with you. Can you tell us your story about how you got involved in dairy farming? Yeah, so I'm actually a fifth-generation dairy farmer. So I grew up on my parents' dairy farm in eastern New Mexico. Um, I left the farm to get my degree in environmental science and didn't necessarily see myself coming back to the dairy farm in the way I have. Um, but as like luck would have it or life would have it, I ended up marrying my husband, who is also a fifth generation dairy farmer here in New Mexico. Um, so I came back to like live and work on his family dairy. And um, my focus on um, our dairy and just in life in general with my career has been on the environmental side of things. So really working with dairy farmers on, you know, water conservation, manure management, soil health. I always joke like the back end of the dairy has been my focus. And then about seven years ago, I decided to kind of open up our farm um, by sharing online and just, you know, opening up social media, sharing, you know, stories, Instagram, all those fun things. And then ultimately teamed up with Natalie for our podcast, Discover Egg. 
Wow, that's fantastic. Uh, what was it like to get your degree in environmental science and then be front row for the destruction of the planet? Everybody talks about how terrible <laughs> cow agriculture is. Was that difficult for you to reconcile or did you realize that the message that most of us are told is actually not true? Yeah, it's definitely an interesting place to be in. And I think um, what I've realized, even with getting my degree, you know, you'd have one professor that would say one thing and another professor that would kind of like disagree or have, you know, arguments, conversations, not even arguments, just healthy conversations and discussions. And what it's made me realize even now is that things are not as straightforward. It is not just like carbon in, carbon out, like that simple. There is very nuanced conversation and agriculture and our food system is one of those that we can't just get like carbon tunnel vision and say like, oh, cattle produce X amount of methane. So therefore they are bad for the environment. When, as I'm sure we'll talk about, like there's so many positives to cattle and uh, ruminant animals, as well as just, you know, the benefit of animal protein in our diets. Uh, and so, yeah, it just, people want things to be straightforward. They want things to be black and white. And I think when it comes to agriculture, there's just a lot of gray and a lot more that goes into it than people realize. Yeah. So interesting. One of the more meaningful conversations I've ever had on this podcast was with Sarah Klopatic. She's also in the industry. I believe she's out of um, Colorado Springs. And she just talked about inputs. Like you're always changing something. Like if you're doing grass fed versus grain fed and CAFOs and all that, you know, all the things we talk, we, we hear about being so bad, it's all trade-offs. Like if the cow lives long longer, that means something different. Water usage is different everywhere. It's not just the carbon. It's not just the methane. So I really appreciate how you've been able to kind of like see the nuance and all of that. I heard one of the most profound things I was listening to a podcast the other day, and they were talking about fish and sustainability around fishing. And they asked, you know, they were interviewing her and her expertise. And she said, well, they asked her, you know, if we want to be sustainable when it comes to sourcing our fish, what should we shop or how should we buy that? And she said, that's not the way to think of it. She said tell me what your value is and then I'll tell you what to buy. And I thought that puts it so well, you know, do you care about the marine life? Do you care about, you know, the, the greenhouse gas emissions of it? Do you care? Like, what do you actually care about? I think the same thing needs to be applied to our food system as a whole, because we're trying to put agriculture into these boxes, I think, and these choices for consumers to make. And it's like, you may not care about the same thing. Like you said, if you're one of your values is, you know, a lower dollar, that's the conventional food system. That's where it plays a role. If one of your value is the grass fed, I mean, these decisions have to come for more than these, these simple ones are trying to simplify it down to. Mm, yeah. I love that. That's such a good point. Natalie, maybe we can hear your story as well, how you got involved in ranching. Yeah. So like Tara, I grew up in it. Um, I'm currently in Nebraska, but I actually grew up in Southwest Montana. I'm a very, very beautiful part of the state on a cattle ranch there. So it's been in my blood and my family for a very long time. I too, like Tara, never really envisioned remaining in agriculture. Um, you know, sometimes you just don't know what you have <laughs> until you leave. And so I got my degree in pharmacy and I was living in a bigger city in Montana and I was practicing pharmacy full time. I was at a hospital and a clinic and I was very happy with my career. I actually, you know, loved my job as a pharmacist. And I really thought that that's kind of what my path would remain. You know, I was in close proximity to our family ranch. And so I still spent a lot of time out there. I was involved in it, but I never thought I would like marry a rancher. I never thought my income would be tied to agriculture. I just never, never thought I'd be sharing online about agriculture. I just never could have predicted where I am now. Um, but as Tara said, as life would have it, I ended up uh, meeting and marrying my husband and he is a Nebraska rancher. And so that's how I ended up down here. Um, and I ended up sharing online for a very different reason than Tara. I actually started a direct-to-consumer beef business with a childhood friend. And that was my first initial introduction to social media beyond it for personal use. 
Um, I did that for a couple of years and then I decided to pivot and create more of like a social brand around our family, my name, and just kind of ranching in general. And so that's what I have done for the last, you know, three to four years. And then like Tara said, that journey kind of led me to her and the creation of our podcast, Discover Ag. That's so interesting. Both of you have such nuanced and interesting backgrounds and in how you got to where you are today. Describe what it was like to be a pharmacist and, you know, you're slinging pills at people. Were you commonly seeing people ever like get better or was it kind of frustrating? The same story you hear from a lot of people in the medical field that you, like you got into the business because you wanted to help people and you're certainly helping people. It's just not the same kind of result that you imagined it would have been. Yeah. So I actually practiced a lot in the farm um, hospital setting. And so it's a little bit different than like an outpatient setting for a pharmacy. Um, I do fill in, we live outside, I'm pretty rural Nebraska. So we live outside of a small town, but there is an outpatient pharmacy there. And there's actually a critical access hospital there as well. Um, and so my exposure to like patient um, as well as like, um, you know, illnesses is a little bit different than you would think of like working at your general Walgreens in like, you know, downtown Manhattan. Um, but it is interesting. I think one thing I took away from pharmacy is for as important as health is for people, for our bodies, we are very lackadaisical about it as a society. I cannot even count how many times, you know, someone would come in for a prescription and it would be new and you'd be like, do you have questions? Do you have concerns? Do you want to go over anything? And they're like, nope. And they're out the door. Um, and so, I mean, on one hand, you know, maybe it's like trust in our medical system or their doctor or that pharmacy in general, the pharmacist. But on another hand, I do feel like people just, it's an area that for as important as it is, we just don't put as much um, like focus, attention, curiosity into it as I think we should. Yeah, that's a really good point. So how did the two of you meet and decide that it would be best to work together? Yeah. Um, that's one of my favorite questions for us. And it's kind of funny. I always joke that it's like classic millennials. We met online on social media. Um, and now, you know, like we're like business partners and, and great friends. Um, but yeah, we have been sharing online in the ag space for a long time. And when we started, there was not a ton of people doing that. It was still very new. I mean, I think about what, you know, Instagram was seven years ago when I started and, you know, you didn't have reels and stories and all those things. This was a lot like OG days of Instagram. And um, so we connected kind of in like a friend chat group of just being able to support each other, see what each other was seeing online. Um, and then from there, it just grew um, into what we have now. We met for the first time in real life in um, 2021. And and then I think it was it 2021. Am I getting my years right? Yes, I am. And then in the fall of 2021 is when we decided to kind of start launching our business together. And then last spring is actually when we launched our podcast. Well, like I said, you guys do such a good job on your podcast. I really appreciate it. So one of the things you're doing on your podcast that I really love is you're debunking a bunch of different myths that, you know, people think about agriculture and in particular raising cattle. And so both of you are raising cattle for different reasons. Let's talk about the similarities, what things are similar in the way that you guys raise your cattle. And what are some of the misconceptions that people have about raising cattle these days? Um, so the similarity is they are cows. And I think maybe <laughs> it stops there. Um, it's funny that you talk about that because, you know, people think of like ag as like, oh, if you're in ag or you're a farmer, you're like all knowing of all ag. And it's crazy how little we knew about each other's like businesses and operations when we like got together. I've learned 
exponentially more about cattle ranching since partnering with Natalie. And I would assume she'd probably say the same when she came out to my farm last uh, summer. It was the first time she had seen like a dairy cow in, in real life. I guess apparently there's not a lot of dairy cows in Montana. I always tease her. And I, I don't know. But uh, it it is vastly different, like really. And that is one of the things that Natalie and I do talk about on the podcast is a lot of times people kind of lump animal protein all together. And as the some of the similarities of dairy and cattle ranching, there is even less similarities between like hogs and, and poultry and that compared to cattle, like it is just vastly different. Um, and so, you know, our cattle here on the dairy farm, I'll start with mine and then Natalie can talk about cattle ranching. Our cattle are in pens. So like confinement is, you know, it's called, you mentioned a CAFO. That's what that word basically means is confined uh, animal feeding operation. Um, and basically they're just in large open corrals. And that even has to do with where our area is. If you went to a dairy farm in the Midwest or the Northeast, it's going to be completely different than what my dairy farm looks like here in New Mexico. Um, and we are a conventional dairy. And I always joke that, you know, people love to throw around the word factory farming and we're a large farm. The average herd size in the United States, is about 300 dairy cows per herd. And we're significantly larger than that. And yet like my backyard is literally our close-up cows where our cows are, are giving birth. And our dairy barn is about 150 steps from my backyard and my girls ride their bikes there, you know? So that's our version of uh, factory farming, I guess. It, it's a lot more family than people think. That's wonderful. Natalie, what about you? Yeah, so we're in a pretty cool area of Nebraska. I always say <laughs> we're leaving the beautiful mountains of Montana. I did get plopped down in a pretty cool area of Nebraska. <laughs> I think a lot of people think of it as like flat and cornfields, which we do have a lot of those. I am not denying that. But we are in our ranch borders, an area known as the Nebraska Sandhills. And if anyone listening is familiar with that, it is a very... um lush, vast ecosystem. Basically, it's one of the world's largest still intact ecosystems. Um, it covers a pretty large portion of the state. And part of the reason why it is still intact um, and has been preserved is because of cattle. You know, So our ranch um, can get kind of confusing talking about the beef system because it's really segmented. And I don't think that's something aware of. So we can maybe dive into that more if you want to. But essentially, our ranch is like kind of at the beginning of a cattle's life. Um, so we are in charge of you know, raising the mom and the baby, we call it a pair. It's usually what you'll hear a rancher call it, the pair. Um, we're in charge of, you know, raising pairs out at pasture. And we do that until a certain uh, weight typically. And then that gets, you know, that animal gets then bought from us. We sell it off um, and it, it kind of goes down. Like the beef system has its own little um, almost food chain itself. Like, uh, and so we would sell it off eventually, but that's what we do here on our ranch. Um, it's, it's really pretty. If you guys want to follow along, on my social media channel, I share it quite often. So if you're interested in what, you know, a ranch in Nebraska looks like, um, catch me online. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So maybe we could go through, um, a, like, a, I guess, like a standard cow in each one of your operations and what the life cycle is like. Yeah. So, um, on the dairy farm, um, our cows are born here on our dairy and we raise all of our calves, um, here on the dairy. So when a calf is born, it's going to be raised in what we call like a hutch. And it's basically for the first two to three months of its life while it's establishing its immune system. Um, we keep it in an individual hutch because 
calves are kind of, I always joke that they're like preschoolers that get put in preschool and that they will all like lick each other, cough on each other, you know, sneeze on each other. So trying to get them off to a really good start in those first couple of months. Um, and they're obviously going to get um, milk uh, multiple times throughout the day. Um, once they get to of age, they're going to get, um, you know, grain and grass and, and all those like forages as well. Um, they're going to move to a group pen after those first couple of months uh, where they will be in um, with several other calves their age, and then we'll continue to raise them up. Uh, we obviously are dairy, so we keep all the female cows and the male cows are actually bred to beef. So it's called beef on dairy. So they are bred to enter the beef supply system. So, um, you know, kind of like a cattle ranch like Natalie's or um, similar to that would buy those cows from us and ultimately raise them. We don't really raise any of the beef cows ourselves. Um, and then for the, you know, the herd size or the milking side of things, when those cows uh, come of age, which is about two years old, they're going to enter our milking herd. So um, they will begin lactating after they obviously give birth to a calf. Um, and then they will continue to um, have a calf. It's about a year and a couple months is like the cycle of a dairy cow. Um, and so we will, after she gives birth, we will milk her. Um, and then whenever it is at about typically nine months after that, we will what's called dry her off. So she will enter a dry cow period where she is not being milked and she's hanging out, growing her next calf. Um, and then the cycle will start all over again uh, at the end of a dairy cow's life. So we will own the cow from the moment she's born till the last moment. And so at the last moment, like at the end of their life, when they're no longer a dairy cow, they do enter the beef supply side of things as well. Mm. Wow. So interesting. How long is that life cycle? It really depends on the cow. Um, but typically I would say usually it's like five lactations. So if you take that into account, it's, you know, the cow is, you know, six to seven years old, essentially. Um, my husband looked recently and I, he has one cow that is uh, like the 13 lactations. So that would mean they're like 15. So it really just depends, um, on lots of different things. Um, you mentioned that like, you know, the longevity of a cow can obviously be a crucial role in being sustainable. So, um, we want that cow to be a part of our herd for as long as possible. I mean, when a cow enters our milking herd, we have a two year investment in her already that we have been raising her up before she ever even enters our milking herd. So obviously we want that longevity to be there then continuing into the future. Mm, that's fantastic. Natalie, what about you? Yeah. So I'll speak for our operation or kind of give our operation as example, but as a caveat for everyone listening, um, <laughs> no two ranches in the U S are the same. Um, a lot of it depends on like geography, um, rainfall, land, pasture type of cattle. I mean, there's so many variables. And so what I'm doing here on our ranch in Nebraska, you could probably have, you know, you already spoke of a guest or a farmer you had on from Colorado. She may do something completely entirely different, like wool calve. You could calve at different seasons um, and times of the year. So for our ranch, we calve in May. We are a May calving herd. Um, and then, like I said, we'll have that the mom and the baby stay together. So they're actually out on pasture um, for uh, all the way until uh, we're lucky enough here in Nebraska that we can graze corn stalks, um, which isn't something a lot of people are aware of, but that's a really good forage for cattle. Um, and then it's obviously beneficial for the farmer because they have an animal out grazing on that land. And so it's a really great integrative system of plant and animal like things should be. Um, so we go from summer pasture where we, you know, rotationally graze our cattle out there. Um, we'll put them onto the pair onto corn stalks together. And then about December is when we, what's called weaning for a ranch. And that is when you separate the mama and the baby from each other. 
Um, at that point, it's almost like a teenage age for the calf. I mean, they're definitely ready to be away from their mother. And I think the mother is ready for them to be, uh, you know, off of them milking. And so we wean around December and then we'll keep that calf again for a few months, finish feeding it. And then that's what we will sell off. And then the cycle just kind of starts all over again. Mm, that's fantastic. It was really interesting to learn about the mothers and the calves from each of you on listening to one of your recent episodes. It sounds like the, the moms in the dairy farm don't really stick with the calves very much. And it sounds like it's almost harder to uh, detach them in your operation, Natalie. Yeah. And that is one thing that, um, you know, a dairy industry does get hit hard for that. And Tara can kind of talk about why those regulations are in place. And they do that because it really is actually for the safety of the calf and then like the health of the mother as well. Um, but that's one thing, like sometimes I'll, when I was sharing about calving, I would get some people commenting, of, you know, about why isn't it the calf with the mother or all these things. And, um, so I do think there's this overlap in, um, just general awareness of how different things are within the agriculture industry. But yeah, beef cattle, they stay with the calves, stay with their moms for quite a while. Yeah. It's interesting online. It gets a lot of confusion between dairy and beef in that way. Um, You know, I've seen videos online of a beef cow. And, you know, if you take away a beef cow's calf, she will like bellow and be more aggressive. And that is bred into a beef cow. And then they'll be like, oh, this is a dairy farm. And you're like, that is not a dairy farm. That's actually a cattle ranch. And it's completely different. Yes, they're both cows, but they are such different animals. Dairy cows have just been bred for different things than cattle ranching. Um, for cattle that are going to be out on pasture. Um, my brother actually made the transition from dairy farming to cattle ranching a few years ago. And he laughs that like what he could put his dairy or his beef cows out on. If he put a dairy cow, like they wouldn't make it a week, you know, that it's just, they're not very hardy animals. And so one of the things that with that breeding is they are, do not always make the best mothers. Um, they will often have a calf, get up, leave the calf and that's it. Like they just don't have a lot of interest. Um, and so it's just a very different world. Um, the other cows in the pen will often like rush to the calf. And so the calf can end up getting hurt. And so there's a lot that goes into it. And it's just, it, they're very bred very differently. Um, and then obviously we take a lot of pride in caring for our calves. There's a ton that goes into raising our calves, um, you know, they're the future of our herd. And so making sure that they have, you know, really healthy start is crucial for us on the dairy. Yeah. It's so interesting. Uh, we'll talk about ethics here in a little bit, but I think people have this idea that if you're going to raise cows, either for dairy or for beef production, you think that the the people running the ranches don't care about animals. And you start to talk to these ranchers and you learn like, no, they, they, like the kids play with them. They have names. Like they really care for their animals, regardless of whether they're in, you know, the most ideal quote unquote grass fed, whatever situation that we think is really idyllic. And again, there's so much nuance to that, but but it, it seems to me across the board, everybody loves the animals and cares for them immensely. Yeah, we yeah. had Natalie's husband, Luke, on the podcast. And so she can jump in here. But he gave such a great quote that was just like, you get into this industry because you genuinely care for animals. Like caring for animals at farmer rancher's core is like what they believe in. Yeah, I was going to say agriculture and farming is actually a really stressful industry. We carry one of the highest suicide rates. And so you're not entering into ranching and farming for like a cush lifestyle or, you know, some of the like a, a high return on your investment. You know, some of these things you can enter into businesses for. Um, you're really entering it because at your core, you love probably one being outside, you know, working with your hands, that kind of trade of thought. But two, because you do love animals. Um, you know, again, my husband is a perfect example. He has wanted to be a rancher and work with cattle since he was little, you know, he's just one of those people that you ask them what they were when they're four year old, 
and that is what they're doing today. And they are more than happy like that was what they were meant to do. And I, I think, like I've already said, you're just, you're in this industry as ranching and farming because you care about animals. And so that's obviously the emotional component of it. You know, the, the, the person, you know, the personal side of it. Um, but there's also the business side of it. You know, that is our, our, our jobs, our ranches, um, you know, how we provide for our families and how you hopefully are going to provide for the next generation too. Um, and our product is our animals, you know, that in the beef supply chain, we have to have good calves for someone to buy it from us to continue down the beef supply chain. Um, and if we don't have a good calf, um, we're not going to get, you know, as good of money for it or people won't want to buy it. And then we're out of a job. And so there's both the emotional side of it and the business side of it. And both of them come down to really high standards when it comes to animal welfare, welfare, and really caring about your animals. Yeah. On the milk side, you know, we get paid on our quality of our milk. Well, you're going to have higher quality milk based on the health of the cow, the diet of the cow, all of those things. So caring for her again, like on the profitability side, which people I feel like an act or people don't always want to hear that side of it, but that's an important piece too. And um, yeah, if we don't have good milk quality, like the processors won't pick up our milk and we would again, like Natalie be like out of a job. That's a really, really good point. Looking at it, not only from the emotional side, but also the business side, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I know this is super contextual. I <laughs> don't assume that either one of you had have have had one day that's any like that like is not vastly different from the next. I'm sure every day has a lot of variety for you. But I wonder if each one of you could talk about like what what would be a typical day. Natalie, you mentioned working with your hands. What is a typical day like for the two of you? Yeah. So I like to explain ranching or break it down kind of in seasons, um, because I feel like that's the best way to grasp what I'm doing every day. Um, because you're right, the job does vary from day to day, but in that time frame, it's like maybe the overall same goal. So like calving season is a big one on our operation and, um, it, the, where it's called what's like a first calf heifer. It's like the first time they're having a calf that is very, very hands-on. So you need to pay attention more. They need help, like just figuring it all out. Um, so depending on how many first calf heifers you have, you know, you're probably very attentive to that and focusing on that. Um, after that, uh, again, a little bit different than dairy, but we have that at pasture. We, you know, the, the mamas who have done this multiple times, they don't need a lot of help. And so calving season isn't as intense for us. It's really great. And kind of a beautiful thing. There's just calves and pears that are all running out and, you know, lush green grass. And so it's really great. Um, but then you kind of roll into summer where, you know, you're rotating pastures, we're fixing fence, we're doing things like that. We're checking on our cattle. Obviously that's a huge thing. Um, you know, they're spread out between different pastures. And so you'll do daily checks on them just for herd health and make sure nothing's wrong. And, um, you know, everything's going well within your herd. And so that's kind of, I'd say like the big goal and focus of, you know, those warmer summer months. Um, and then in fall, you know, we're moving from pasture to cornfields. And so that's a big part of it. And then when they're on cornfields, they do need supplemented with, you know, different things in their diet. Their cattle aren't different than humans where they need, you know, salt and different things for their um, electrolytes for their body. And so you're managing all of that. And then you kind of roll into winter where um, herd, our herd is no longer out at pasture. They're, they're closer to us um, just because we deal with storms and weathers and things like that. And we're generally feeding with the tractor. And so um, a lot of it is like season dependent, but it's all focused around basically making sure your calf is like eating or your herd, your, your cows and your calves. Um, they're eating right every single day and they're remaining healthy every single day. Yeah. Fantastic. What about you, Tara? Yeah. On the seasonality of Natalie's mine is completely opposite. Ours is all about routine. The exact same thing every single day at the same time. Dairy cows love a good routine. You could set your clock by the cows and their movements around our dairy. 
Um, so uh, we start, obviously our cows are fed twice a day, every single day. Um, this is pretty common in all cattle, but we actually have a nutritionist that plans our cows diets. As kind of Natalie said, just making sure they're getting exactly what they need and when they need it. Um, their pens are groomed every single day. So that's always going on. Um, I mentioned that the calves, you know, they are given bottles multiple times a day and then, um, access to, you know, grains and grasses and fresh water. And then as far as a milk cow, um, when the cows are milking, they go into the barn twice a day. Some dairies will do three times a day, uh, but most do two times a day. It just kind of depends on your system and what you have set up. Um, and the cows are milked for about eight minutes each time. So it's about just over 15 minutes a day that they spend actually being milked in the barn. And then the rest of the time they are out in their corrals, hopefully chewing their cut, just relaxing. I mean, that's like the sign when you pull up to the dairy and you can see cows in the back of the pen, just chewing their cut. It's a sign of just like a really content herd, a uh, healthy herd that they're just hanging out, relaxing. Um, and then on the calving side, so Natalie mentioned like seasons. We do not have seasons. We calve almost the same every single day. We calve between 15 and 20 calves um, on our main dairy every single day, pretty much without fail. Um, you know, you have a spring flush sometimes where it's a little bit more um, in that, that perfect ideal weather where the calves want or the cows want to calve, but pretty consistent overall. Um, and then actually one similarity that Natalie mentioned, those first time heifers, we keep them actually there as close to my house as you can get because um, you want to be able to keep an eye on them. They're really close to the barn so that, you know, employees as they're milking can keep an eye on them. Um, we try not to um, engage at all unless they need help. Um, and that goes the same for then second lactation, third lactation, those older cows. Typically, they don't need a ton of help. Uh, but it's just kind of one of those things you want to keep an eye on them. And then similar to weather, you know, if it's a really hot day or a really cold day, uh, we go out there and get the calf in as quickly as possible. If it's cold, a lot of times they'll get a warm bath, get dried off um, and get them under a heat lamp. Um, and so as many differences as there are between our two industries, again, the same thing is keeping them comfortable, well-fed and, and content in their, you know, whatever habitat environment they're in. Yeah. So interesting. I love hearing the similarities and the contrasts as, as well. Um, you mentioned employees. How many employees do each of you employ? This is a big difference, actually, between our two. Um, dairy is a much more like hands-on, I feel like, intensive like labor, like needing people. Typically, you need one employee per 100 cows. That seems to be kind of like an average of no matter how small you are or how big you are, that's kind of where it falls. So the dairy farm that I live on, that my house is on, uh, we have about 20 employees here. Okay. Yeah. And I'm actually going to answer this question and then also weave it into the, the train of thought around factory farming. Um, because the average herd size for beef cattle in the U S is 43. So it's actually really small, a lot smaller than most people will think. Um, and our ranch is much larger than that. We're well into the multiple hundreds. Um, and it is just my husband and I, and then we have one full-time employee and then we, um, have brought on a summer intern. Um, so one, you know, vastly different than like Tara said, uh, we, we are managing, you know, multiple hundred cattle with just, you know, a, a few people or less than five, you know? Um, but I think it goes to show that, you know, factory farming, um, is maybe painted a little bit differently, um, than, than most people would be aware of it. 
Yeah, definitely. It definitely is. Okay, so I think we're all mutual um, fans of Jane Reese Buxton. She's the author of The Great Plant-Based Con, wonderful book where she goes into the, kind of the plant-based movement. And I really love the way she structures the arguments against the plant-based movement in particular. So there's one bucket that's all about like nutrition and this idea that we have that meat is bad for you, vegetables and grains and fruits are all really good for you. Um, she talks about that and that's one bucket. The second bucket might be um, you know ethical concerns and the concerns about the um, environment and third might be like planetary health. And and she sets those up differently. And I love the way she does that because otherwise the arguments with people who are not into, you know, raising meat and, and consuming meat, it, the argument tends to like jump around a lot. So I'd like to start with the first bucket and just talk about nutrition. Where on earth did we get this idea that's actually relatively new that meat is bad for our health? Yeah, that's such a good question. Uh, when you, I mean, it's so wild. Like sometimes I'm like, how are we here? Like, how are we at this point that we think milk and meat, like beef and whole dairy are bad for us? Like when you really look at it, like I, both Natalie and I are pretty big advocates of like a whole foods diet, like incorporating, you know, just whole foods. If that, if you can just get to the source of the food, you're doing pretty well as a starting point. And so how did we get to this idea that, you know, a plant-based burger with 25 ingredients is somehow going to be superior from a health and a sustainable sustainability standpoint, you know, how, how on earth are we there? And so it is a wild place, um, in the nutrition <laughs> landscape right now. So strange. Yeah, I don't exactly know how we got off, you know, so far off train either, but I do think we maybe actually hit hopefully like the climax point of that. I was just listening to a wellness podcast this morning that I feel like is pretty mainstream. You know, she lives in LA, you know, like very typical, uh, millennial wellness. And they were actually talking about the importance of protein in the diet, especially for women. Um, and it was really refreshing to hear that. I don't think we've gotten to the point in society where we're back, you know, to the point of maybe comparing animal versus plant protein. But I do think there's kind of a growing movement and awareness around the importance of protein again. And I think we're kind of circling back around. Um, I don't know where we got off train and thought there for a while, but I feel like on social media, it was like, kind of the trending thing to do, you know, vegan, plant, yoga, like that whole lifestyle. It's cleaner, it's better, it's leaner, um, it's prettier, all of that. But um, I, I think we're coming back around, which is a good sign for us as a society. Yeah, I think so too. Sometimes that pendulum just has to swing and it's got to go so far one way that it goes the other direction. If anybody has any questions about this, you guys just interviewed Vinny Tortorich, who's made a few different movies that I absolutely love. I have offered to pay anybody. I will recompensate you to listen to these. If you buy these on Amazon, I will pay you back. I will Venmo you. They're that important. And the last one he made was Beyond Impossible, which is all about this fake meat push, which hopefully is dying down. Obviously, their stocks are tumbling, but the idea that like we could make something and produce something that comes from China that would be like way better than something we've already had and have been consuming for millions of years is so ridiculous. Yeah, that we um, are doing a summer debunking series on Discover Ag Podcast. And that was, we've been pairing a, um, I guess, Netflix anti-animal ag video with a positive. And so we paired game changers and we brought on a registered dietitian, which is actually something completely lacking from the conversation in the game changers. I don't even have our RD on to talk about the nutrition side of things. Um, and then we brought on Vinny to highlight uh, Beyond Impossible. And yeah, I mean, he, I, I joke that he comes out swinging and that movie because he really just like tackles all of these myths associated. Um, and a big one that I have found is it seems like when people are eating plant-based, they think they are like supporting like small local farms and that it's like a, a whole plant 
approach to food. And that's really not the case when you look at these big, huge, you know, agri-food systems that are really behind, you know, the beyond um, burger and impossible burger or whatever, all of those different food systems. It's not quite what people think when I, when I think they have this idealistic idea of like, kind of like Natalie said, this wellness yoga plant-based like movement. Yeah. Vinny made such a good point in the episode you guys did with him um, that I've heard Leah Keith make before, which is like, you think in your brain that like a vegan or plant-based diet is just salad and vegetables. And it, it's absolutely not. It's a bunch of processed crap. You can't live just on vegetables and salad. You're going to be very hungry. And when you're hungry, you're going to be eating a lot of processed food, a lot of seed oils and a lot of refined grains. And not a lot of people consider that. Yes. Uh, one of the things that, you know, we talk about is if you gave up, if everyone in the United States went vegan, they would only reduce their carbon footprint by 2.6%. And I've even seen that even disputed a little bit by the time you have additional fertilizers and all, all the other benefits from cattle. But is that 2.6% worth the nutrition that we're giving up as far as, you know, increased calorie intake, um, lacking in a lot of micronutrients? I mean, I think there's one thing we can agree on is that like in this country, we do not need more calories. We need more nutrient dense food. So the idea of cutting entire food groups that are really nutrient dense and all, not just protein, you know, we love to talk about protein, but the micronutrient level of what, you know, the animal protein offers, um, is that really worth the trade-off there, like at our risk of our health, it does not seem worth it to me. Yeah, that's such a good point. Maybe now would be a good time to talk about planetary health. We hear a lot of myths. You guys are talking about debunking mix, and there's plenty to debunk here. Tell us about the ideas behind why we think animal agriculture, particularly cows, is so harmful and what the actual true story is. Yeah, I think they get painted so poorly in society right now because of methane. Um, and carbon. And that's really the focus on it. It's like, we need to cut down those numbers, you know, planets warming up and it's all because of cows and the methane they emit. Um, and there's so many different avenues we could go from this conversation. I mean, you can even get into comparing like the methane cattle produced compared to, you know, the methane landfills produced compared to like termites and rice. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of other things that are methane emitting um, on our planet besides just cattle. And so, you know, there's that argument to it. There's an argument that, you know, when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions, agriculture is actually only 11% of it compared to, you know, transportation and energy, you know, they make up the other 80 or 90% of it. Um, and within that 11% of agriculture, you know, uh, beef or um, not beef, animal agriculture is actually, I always forget this star, is it like 4%? I've heard 4%. About 4%. Yeah. I've heard four, yeah. 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 And so in the grand scheme of things, when you're coming at it, you know, from a number standpoint, again, all these people that are getting really angry about these greenhouse gas emissions, you're like, well, in the grand scheme of thing, like we're not denying that agriculture has a footprint, you know, we're not naive enough to say that. Um, but, you know, do we have bigger fish to fry? Are there other things we could be doing that would have more of an impact um, curbing them? Because I think, again, at the end of the day, we also forget that like food production is, <laughs> you know, like uh, required to eat and survive as humans. And so Tara and I actually have this question a lot on our podcast is, you know, the hypothetical, like what is the accepted number for an industry that like close feeds, feeds us, close us, then provides fuel, um, you know, for 330 million people and then 9 billion global. Like what, you know, I feel like, 14% globally is like not a bad, bad number. And it, within the U S you know, I feel like we're doing pretty good and agriculture is always, always like striving. They're setting, we're setting pretty, you know, large sustainability goals. And so we're always working for improvements. And so I think there like has to be conversation around that as well. 
Um, and then the other thing I think people don't talk about because they're so focused on like cutting down methane and cutting down carbon. It's like, no one is talking about the good things, you know, that cattle do at the environment as well. You know, my ranch, again, I already talked about, it's an amazing example of maintaining grasslands. Like we need ruminant animals out there. There's actually five principles to soil health and a grazing animal is one of them. And if we want to talk about, you know, cutting down carbon or removing carbon from our environment, it's going to be coming from our soils. So the best thing we can do to keep, take care of our soils is to have, you know, increase that organic matter and have animals be a part of it. And so I think there's a lot of uh, conversation lacking about what it would actually look like if we removed animal agriculture, because it wouldn't, in my opinion, and um, I think it's a pretty uh, opinion rooted in science and facts, it would not be a more sustainable option. Yeah, agreed. Tara, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think that there, you know, Natalie said there's so many different ways that this conversation could go. But, um, you know, we, we've been seeing a big trend around the world uh, that we've been covering on the podcast about people wanting to cull cows, so essentially remove cows in different countries. And one of my issues with that is if the demand is still there, which it is, like demand for dairy is higher than it's ever been. Consumption of dairy is higher than it ever has been. So if we cull cows in a country that is really making strides in being more efficient, improving technology, improving genetics and breeding and all of these things, and we remove it, but the demand's there, we're just going to move those emissions to someplace else. You know, it's leakage, essentially, that we're going to be, and we may even be increasing emissions because we're moving them to another country where they may not have the genetics and the opportunities that we have and are maybe, you know, a couple decades behind us and still improving. And so all we've done is just move emissions around the world and we're not actually solving any problems there. And it goes to the point that like, Animal or agriculture as a whole and forestry are the only two industries that at their core are their job is to remove carbon. It's to grow plants to either just eat plants or grow plants to feed cattle. And that removes carbon like no other industry can say that. So why are we so hyper focused on removing them from the conversation instead of like being at the table, having conversations about how we can actually use agriculture as a tool to help mitigate, you know, these climate impacts? Yeah, that's such a great point. And it's it's like you guys said, it's not to say that it doesn't contribute. There is a contributing factor there. It's just so small, then people don't really realize. They think they're being super virtuous by choosing a plant-based meal and think that, you know, they're doing best for the planet by doing that, but it's it's such a small fraction. Like I took a picture and put on my social media uh, a year or two ago where there was a cow pasture and a bunch of cows hanging out on this land that really couldn't be used for anything else. And in the background was 12 lanes of a highway and a cement um, factory operation that's literally like decimating a mountain. And it's like, are these guys ruining the planet? Like, are you kidding me? Like, give me a break. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting, you're talking like the marginal versus non-marginal lands. And that's another thing that, um, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And so I think, like you said, when uh, people are making that choice to help better the planet, I do think it's coming from a good place. I just don't think they've been giving all the facts about what that actually entails and goes into. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, again, my where I live isn't a beautiful example. The Nebraska Sandhills are the grasslands because they cannot be cropped or grown for anything else. Like they are best suited to be grasslands, to be an ecosystem and have cattle be out grazing on them. If we removed cattle, you'd see that land one desertify, like it would not be taken care of. It would, you know, um, not be healthy land. So it wouldn't be doing the job of removing carbon on its own. Um, and it can't be used for much else. And so we'd either see it go to urban sprawl, which I don't think that's going to be helping, you know, the global footprint and, um, we have as a society. And so I think there needs to be, yeah, more conversation around like, um, what land can be used for best. Um, and it's not necessarily, um, always going to be just like growing vegetables or going to urban sprawl. Yeah. 
Such a good point. Let's talk about the third bucket that we kind of mentioned, which is ethical concerns. And so for people that care about living creatures and animals so much that they decide that they don't want to do it, they're not going to eat meat. I I can relate to that. That's fair. That's totally fine. But what would you want them to know about the ethical concerns of consuming meat? Yeah, one of the big things that Natalie and I actually recently, this has been coming up more and more, like animal welfare has never been better on farms and ranches and dairy farms than it is now. Like, I truly believe that. Like, we have come such a long way in like our diets for our cows, the genetics of the cows, just the overall health of understanding the cows. Um, you know, there's the combination of just the true like herdsman who just understands the cow. Like Natalie and I always joke that our husbands can see a cow, spot a sick cow from like a hundred miles away. Like I could have a stomach bug downstairs and he would not notice I'm sick, <laughs> but like a cow that like has droopy ears a hundred yards away, he spots her and is like, oh my gosh, something's wrong with that cow. Combined too with the technology of being able to implement some really cool programs. My husband has been, oh my goodness, spending hours and hours and days and days researching some new herd health technology that he wants to implement that'll give him, you know, just more information, more data about his cows as he's making management decisions. And so I really think like we are just, we are only getting better. And I think we're in a really good place. Like, is there room for improvement kind of similar to the environmental side? Sure. But we're, we're doing a great job. I mean, we have a vet that comes on, on site once a week that does herd health checks. Um, you know, we have third-party audits here on the dairy farm of people coming in and reviewing our herd health overall. Uh, we have the nutritionists, as I mentioned. Like, there's a lot of people going into a lot of experts, a lot of hands on our cows, looking at them, um, helping us, you know, make the best decisions for them. Yeah. And I would kind of answer this too. It's hard because it kind of goes back to what I said earlier when I was giving that the fisherwoman example where um, I, I kind of want to know like, what's your issue? You know, is it like, you don't like seeing a cow in a, a lot and not on grass? And then like, let's have the, the discussion of like what that actually looks like. Does it mean anything for the animal? You know, um, I think people have problems with feedlots because they see animals like grouped together all the time. I'm like, cows are herd animals. I could, we could have our cattle out and like, how many hundred acre pasture, whatever it is. And I'll drive by and I'll see all of them lumped together in the corner, like right on top of each other, you know? So sometimes I have to know like what your issue with animal welfare and care is to like have that conversation. But as Tara said, um, you know, I am proud to be a a rancher. Um, I do not deny that there are probably bad apples um, within our industry as there is in every single industry, but by far, you know, I'm proud the way my family raises cattle. I'm proud of the way we raise cattle. I'm proud of the way our neighbors raise cattle. Like I'm proud of our USB system. Um, and then the other thing I'll add to this conversation is, and it's kind of a, a trickier one, but I think people are, have this, this idea sometimes that like nature is kind. Um, and that if we weren't, you know, using these animals for ourselves, that they just be living these great lives out at nature, like frolicking at pasture, Um, And that is not the case at all. I was actually listening to a really interesting podcast between two hunters and they were talking about what happens um, to animals. Like if we, you know, for people who are against hunting Um, and they talked about how there'll obviously be like predatory attacks. Um, And that's not like a clean, simple death, you know, like they were talking about a caribou or an elk, maybe it was, I don't remember. But like, if that gets attacked by a wolf, it could be like a five to seven day drawn out, very slow, painful death, you know, like that's not neat and tidy either. Um, they talked about how sometimes the older the animal gets, they'll just lose their teeth and then they actually like starve to death. And that's obviously also a very slow, painful death. Um, they talked about like herds moving and having to cross like rivers and like some will drown and get lost behind. And so I think there has to also be more realistic conversation about, um, you know, what animals out in the wild looks like, what an, an animal's life is intended to be. Um 
And then, yeah, like our cattle are cared for really well up until they have one bad day, but it is pretty quick, painless and and done for a lot differently. Again, stark contrast to the one that just got attacked by, by the wolf and is, you know, slowly dying out at pasture. That's such a good point. A fresh season of Our Planet just dropped on Netflix, by the way. I think it was season two and they had uh, four episodes, which my wife and I binged. And yeah, they would end episodes on like brutal things in nature. They wouldn't even have like a feel good story at the end. Like it's it's pretty rough out there. And I don't think people take enough consideration to, to think about like when they're buying, you know, monocropped products, what happens to the land where the monocrop is being grown? This isn't growing in the wild. You have to nuke everything then keep everything but that one plant killed. And then as you're harvesting your, you know, whatever you are growing, corn or rice or wheat or whatever, you have to then drive a combine and kill everything. It's brutal. And so just because you're choosing a plant-based diet doesn't mean there isn't blood on all of our hands. We all need to be considering all of that when we're thinking about how to make our food choices. Yeah, Yeah, our... Our ranch, we actually work with our local NRCS to put in like butterfly habitats um, and people, ranchers were working to do like things for like, you know, wildlife to work with them and like, um, you know, birds and things like that. And that's actually like one of the best signs of like you're doing really good as a rancher is when you have like diverse plant growth as well as like diverse animals on your operation. So yeah, if you want to like get in again to the weeds in the conversation of like, overall, like, yes, maybe one animal has to die at the end of like, a, if you're eating beef, a cattle rancher's life, but overall we're providing a really great ecosystem for other animals to like survive and flourish too. And I'm definitely of that train of thought of like, you know, um, life there, there's just circles of life. Um, and you know, animals play a role, humans play a role and we, it all, it's just like a big evolving circle, I guess. Natalie and I, we interviewed someone and there was a really great quote that, um, food is the only like area expertise that people put science and emotion on the same playing field that people just bring a lot of emotion to the conversation. And, you know, you mentioned it, it's a hard conversation to have. If somebody believes like we should not be killing like animals for food, it's hard to really have a scientific conversation about that. Or you can show them all the facts and data about, you know, our herd health and, and all of these different things. Um, and so that, that obviously it's a, it's a difficult conversation to have. And it does, I think that's, you know, where we end up sometimes of not being able to change people's minds or, or even have like productive conversations because there's just so much emotion rooted in that conversation for that person. Yeah. We're, we're advocates of the carnivore diet and it's hard for us to talk about and wrestle with these kinds of things. We love animals. We love all the animals and the, you know, our pets and the cows. And I don't know any other carnivore advocates out there that really hate animals and ethically, you know, choose to eat the way they eat because of that. Um, I do have to ask, since we're talking about ethics, the difference between conventional meat and what, what people would consider like quote unquote, high quality grass fed grass finished. I have bought meat from a rancher who was not low local to me, but in a state local to me. Um, and I bought meat from the grocery store in like the least expensive way that I can find it. I've done both. Where do you guys land on the difference between what we would consider the highest quality quote unquote meat versus whatever we can get at, at the local grocery store? Uh, again, it's kind of like, tell me what you care about most and I'll tell you which way to shop. Um, I'm happy to hear you do both. Cause I want people to feel good about doing both. Um, I will say that like a couple of I guess, like points to clear people up if they maybe have questions about like big differences or why they would choose one over the other. Um, I always say that if you are concerned or it is important to you to support like U.S. farming and ranching, the best is going to be to try and do direct to consumer um, because we're kind of at like a goofy place in um, 
US labeling right now, where even if it says product of the USA on meat labeling, it does not necessarily mean it is um, animals from the US, unfortunately. And so that is like confusing for consumers. Um, so if you really care about like supporting ranching and farming with within um, the US and, and want to do that directly, like direct to consumer is really good. I will also say that one big difference between like grocery store beef and direct to consumer beef is the hamburger, like the ground products. Um, so fortunately, like we have a grading system within the beef industry, right? So you have prime choice and select. And so prime across the board is going to be prime, whether you got it at the grocery store, or whether you got it from a direct to consumer. I mean, it's it's graded prime. It's going to be prime. Um, so your whole cuts, I don't necessarily think there's going to be a lot of difference, um, but there is a big difference on your grounded product because if you ordered again, direct from that rancher, all of that hamburger would be from that one cow. Whereas hamburger you're eating at the grocery store is usually a blended product. So it is a whole bunch of different animals coming together. Oftentimes it's also imported beef. We import a lot of our lean beef. That's actually what we import most is lean beef because we put that into our grounded hamburger we raise in the US um, so that we get the, those percentages that people want, you know, like that, whether it's 20, 80 or 30, 70, whatever it is. Um, so if you don't like that idea and you want a whole animal, you want to know which animal it was, you know, who raised it again, direct to consumer is best. So there's just a lot of, um, there is a lot of, I guess, differences, but at the end of it, I do think you're getting like a whole nutritious product. Um, and so you can feel good about doing either or. Really love that. Okay. So you guys started this project. You're sharing your message. How are you both feeling now that you've been putting this out for a while? Are you feeling optimistic that things are changing? And like we talked about earlier, maybe the tide is turning or the pendulum is swinging, or do you still feel like we've got a very long way to go as far as clearing up the confusion and dispelling the myths in the animal agriculture industry? I mean, I feel like it might be a combination of both. I will say, I feel like we're in our post COVID era that we're in now, I do think COVID, like one of the things that came out of it is people really stopping and thinking about the food system a little bit more, where their food was coming from. Like, you know, we had all this dis disruptions at the grocery store, the food supply chain, and it made people question things a little bit more. And so I feel like I've noticed a trend of people being more like food curious, just wanting to know where their food comes from, wanting to know the farmer or rancher. And I hope like that is one of our goals with Discover Ag is to hopefully like fill that void of saying like, you know, you have questions about your food, you're seeing headlines in the news. Let us like have these kind of conversations just like we're having today about like what's going on, what people need to know um, and what the actual like facts are of this of the story and the headlines. Um, and so I do think we're headed in the right direction. I think we have a long way to go, but I think we're headed in the right direction. And, and it makes me really hopeful when I see people who are curious about their food, who want to have questions answered um, and want to know their farmer or rancher. I would agree with Tara. And I think it's a little bit of that, like very cliche saying that's like, it's not a destination, it's a journey because, um, you know, 2% of the population does grow food for hundred percent of the population. So there will always be a disconnect between, you know, people who are living in a large city and where food is grown and how it's grown. So while yes, I think we are at that turning point, Tara and I always like to joke that like milk and meat are finally like having its moment again, which is very exciting. Um, but I think we'll forever be in this place where there will be continued need for, um, you know, relationships and connection because um, we're always going to be removed from how, as a society, we'll always be removed from how our food is grown. And so there will always be a, a place for questions, concerns to enter, right? When there's a large gap, that's where confusion and emotion and all of that stuff enters into play. So as long as we are a society that is removed from growing our own food, 
there'll always be a need, you know, to, to better understand it. Mm. Well, Natalie and Tara, you guys are wonderful examples of people who are getting that message out there and they're making it very easy and accessible for people. And so I, I'm with you. I think we've got a long way to go, but I am optimistic that the conversation is changing and people are starting to ask more questions, which is really wonderful. I, the, the, both of you have wonderful stories. And again, I think it's one thing to live the ranching lifestyle. It's another thing to try to make it accessible and share with people all over the world, which is what you're doing, which I think is amazing. Tell people where they can go to find you to connect with you in your work. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Um, you can connect with us both. Obviously, if you are listening to this, you're a podcast person. So we would love to have you guys over on the Discover Ag podcast. Um, and then we both share on social media. So I share um, at my personal, it's just my name, at Tara Vanerdeson, and you're going to see a lot of dairy farming there. And then I share on my personal, which is my name as well, Natalie Kavoric, and you get a lot of cattle <laughs> out at pasture and ranching there. <laughs> that is fantastic. We will definitely link to that in the show notes and look forward to seeing lots of great content from you guys. Thank you so very much for taking the time out of your very, very busy uh, ranching lifestyles to have a conversation that I think more people need to hear and understand that the messaging you know, in the mainstream has just gotten so ridiculous and out of control. And I think bringing it back into a more balanced view is really important. And you guys are a big part of that. So thank you so very much much for everything you do. And thank you for taking time to be on, our, be on our show today. We really appreciate you. Thank you for welcoming us to your community and giving us a platform to share our voice and stories. So uh, we appreciate it. Absolutely. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It's incredible to see the podcast continue to grow and grow and reach more people from all over. We always love seeing all the comments and feedback that you send in. And frankly, in the last few months, I've actually gotten some of the kindest messages I've ever gotten from listeners of our podcast. And it's just really so overwhelming and humbling. And I'm just so grateful for that. Our intention for Boundless Body Radio was to always put something positive back out in the world and help share a message of health to hopefully improve some lives. And I'm very happy to say that I feel confident that we are accomplishing that mission. We absolutely love connecting with people from all over the world. So please go to myboundlessbody.com and feel free to book a complimentary 30-minute session with us. We love helping people create plans to reach their health goals, but even if it's just to schedule a time to say hello and introduce yourself or to just have a session where we can bounce ideas off of each other other, we would really love to hear from you. Also, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review as it's a great way to help this podcast reach more people. You can also go to our YouTube channel, which I don't often talk about, and subscribe to our show, Boundless Body, where we post all of these full interviews. And I also post some shorter clips taken from these interviews that might highlight something really awesome that one of our podcast guests uh, was talking about. So be sure to go check that out. Thank you again, as always, for listening to Boundless Body Radio. We really appreciate you, the listener, and look forward to many more great episodes to come. Thank you.